When I was in my 20s, like many of you, I was very inspired by the book of Hermann Hesse, uh, Siddhartha. And I don't remember all the various things and, and details about the book now. What I've most taken with me through my life is the image of the river, and um, which is why the river comes to play so much in my Dharma talks. And so tonight, the title of my talk is The River of Change. And I think this image of the river was so important to me because it was about deeply listening to the river. Deeply listening to the river. The river that's always moving, that's always changing. The river outside of us, of course, the changing elements, the changing conditions of life. Yes, that. But even more deeply and devoutly, the river of life inside of us that's always moving and changing, the flowing on of life, the flowing on of the river of life with all its changing experiences that we open to, moment to moment to moment. And of course, that inner river and even that outer river can be like a gentle rippling, can be easy to open to. We can be at ease with it. And then sometimes there's the torrential flowing of experience inside of us, outside of us worlds of confusion, of overwhelm, not at ease with that. We see in our practice and in our lives, of course, that everything is changing at every level, in the outer world of experience and in this inner world, moment to moment to moment. So this river of change uh, is about anicca, it's about impermanence. It's about using the preciousness of our lives. Our practice deepens our understanding of anicca, and that understanding is profoundly liberating. Our practice is vipassana, seeing things or seeing conditions or seeing life as it actually is, not with the overlay of ideas and concepts, not with a thinking mind, but with an experiential, receptive mind. This kind of mindfulness that we need to see deeply is not the occasional mindfulness, not a general kind of mindfulness, although that keeps the thread of mindfulness going in our practice, but it is the continuous awareness, moment to moment, which provides the momentum and the strength that our practice needs to break through the delusion of wrong view, the delusion of the views that keep suffering flowing on in our lives and in the lives of others. The deep experiential understanding of Anicca is something the Buddha 
pointed to as a very important experience. Once on a long retreat, early on in my practice, I was reporting to Sayadaw Upandita and also to another monk, Bilin Sayadaw. They call him Bilin Sayadaw because he was, he's from that town. And he's an older monk and uh, uh, a little different from Sayadaw Upandita in that he has a constant smile on his face. <laughs> And he's easy to be with. <laughs> um, being with Bilan Sayadaw every other day was really um, such a precious time for me during that time because there was a lot of opening to Anicca. And I think it was very much because whenever I came to him with my practice, He would veer me away over and over again from getting into the storyline of what was going on, the content of what was going on, the whys and wherefores of it. But he would constantly ask me the question, is this permanent? Is this solid? And constantly I would have to answer to him, no, it's always changing. What is being experienced is not solid. And so it helped me to open to Anicca in a deeper way over and over and over again. That was his job, just continually pointing that truth of Anicca to me and what was happening in the practice over and over again. Is it solid? Is it ephemeral? Is it permanent? Is it impermanent? This is from the Buddha. Though with a faithful heart, one takes refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, or with a faithful heart, one observes sila, or develops a mind full of metta, by far more meritorious it is if one cultivates the perception of impermanence, even if only for a moment. So listening to the wisdom of the river of change, this is what our practice is opening us to over and over and over again, moment by moment, through all these years of practice. We open to practice to that deep river of change. Then we bring that kind of grot understanding into our lives. And somehow it's easier to cope with how things are different, how things change. We hang on less tightly. We practice that in our daily lives, and then we bring that back into our meditation-intensive periods of practice. And it deepens yet again, and then we bring it out in the world again. And so we continually open to this truth. We recognize the flowing onness of life. This is how it is. And through that over and over again recognition, we begin to relax more into the truth of this anicca, into a deep understanding of that. Of course, we can easily see this truth in a conventional way. The changes of nature, of the weather patterns outwardly, 
The other day we had very clear blue skies. The temperature outside was just enough for a nice walk. Not too cold, not the bitter cold, not too hot, just right walking around the loop. There was a softness about everything. And the very next day there was a drastic change. There was that ice storm, the harshness, the hardness of that, the elements, very intense, the temperature changing from just rightness in one way to iciness, the great winds of the air element whipping through space. Of course it's uncomfortable, but we open to that. We say this is how it is in a way. We may not like it, we may complain about it, but this is how it is. We accept the changing weather patterns outwardly. Noticing and accepting that on a level of impermanence is ordinary kind of wisdom, conventional kind of wisdom. But what's extraordinary is opening to what's happening on an elemental level, moment to moment, in this inner life, the inner weather patterns of our life. Sensations of the body, memories, feelings, intentions, the knowing of it all, changing moment to moment to moment to moment. We notice the arising, the changing, the passing away of all that phenomena. Manindra uses a phrase a lot with me and other people, and in that phrase is the word law. And when he uses that word, it means the natural phenomena of the arising and passing away of everything. And he would say quite often, surrender to the law, surrender to the naturalness of the arising and passing away of everything. Someone would die, and I'd say, why? And he would say, surrender to the law. I'd see or we'd experience something that was very jarring, and he would say, surrender to the law. I would want it to be something different than what it is, and he would say, surrender to the law. This is how it is in this moment. It's not a resignation to how it is. It's more turning towards the acceptance of the anichaness of life, the impermanence of life. He would also say, let go, let go, let go, let go. Not hold on to any way I think it should be. This is from the Sutta Nipata, the words of the Buddha. Let there be nothing behind you. Leave the future to one side and grasp not what remains in the middle. Wow, everything, <laughs> you can't hold on anywhere. Really, why? Because it's all changing. Behind us, in memory, it can seem so solid, 
we ponder and reflect on that over and over again, and our thoughts form kind of a concreteness to the past. In the moment of actually knowing the past, what is that? It's just a thought. It's just a wispy moment of remembering something. It's just noting and noticing, remembering. That's all. We don't carry a memory forward as a sense of I when we see it this way. It's so so ephemeral. When the mind leans into the future, planning, worrying, fearing, anticipating, it too can seem like solid ground that we're resting on. We kind of take solace sometimes in planning. But when we see it clearly, when we look at it profoundly, we see that it's just a moment, wispy, ephemeral, evanescent, just like everything else. It's moving. In the moment, it's like a flickering star, a mirage, a flame, a magical illusion, a dewdrop, a bubble on a stream. It's like a dream, a cloud or a flash of lightning. Those are the words that the Indian sage Chandra Kirti wrote. It's like a magical illusion, and we live in that illusion because we don't see the changing nature of it. We make it solid with our thoughts. Even something so seemingly solid as the body what makes up what we call body. When we bring the attention really closely, we see it's just these changing sensations manifesting in different elemental ways. Empty of an abiding self, really. When seen very deeply, that's the truth that is seen. It's just this flowing on of the different elements The weather pattern outside is no different from the weather pattern inside. The body manifesting as the earth element, the changing moments of hardness, softness, contraction, expansion. This is the manifestation of the earth element in the body. The fire element changing experiences and moments of heat, warmth, coolness, coldness, the varying temperature of the body. This is the fire element manifesting itself. The air element swaying, jerking, vibration. Different ways that the air element manifests manifests in the body. And the water element that element that coalesces all of the other elements. So these elements manifest themselves in the body, and when we come close, we see that it's, it's just swaying here, just vibration there, just softness here, just hardness there, 
just expansion here, just contraction there, heat and warmth and coolness and coldness. It's just flowing on like everything else. It's so ephemeral. It's not solid, really. This continual flow of experience that's always changing seems solid when we don't come close to it, when it's not investigated deeply. That continuity is perceived as solid and permanent. But when we get closer, we see through that solidity. We see through that seeming permanence. It's not really that way. It's like when from afar we might see a line on a wall or on the ground, and we think that maybe it's a stick or maybe a snake. And when we get up closer, we see it's just some ants crawling along, one after another, with space in between. Not solid, really. We experience that about the body. Our view of what we call body radically changes. Like Steve was saying last night about getting closer and closer to the different experiences of what we call this person, this self, this body, we experience the body so evanescent. It's like we wonder whether we're there. Sometimes we open our eyes to see, are we still there? We pinch ourselves. The body gets so light. Conventionally, we say this body is me, is mine, is myself. But profoundly, we wonder when we get this close. Through the deepening insight of Anicca, with the light of mindfulness, which brings forth wisdom, it reveals something deeper that changes our look on life. That insight into Anicca brings about the insight into anatta. This, what we call body, every moment of what we call body, we can't find anything that's enduring or solid there. This is from the Buddha. Just as brethren in the autumn season when the sky is opened up and cleared of clouds, the sun, leaping up into the firmament, drives away all darkness from the heavens and shines and burns and flashes forth. Even so, brethren, the perceiving of impermanence, if practiced and enlarged, tears out all conceit of I am. And in that way, brethren, so does it wear them out, it is by seeing such is body, such is the arising of body, such is the vanishing of body, such is feeling, perception, the activity, such as consciousness, its arising and its ceasing. Even thus practiced and enlarged, brethren, does the perceiving of impermanence wear out all conceit of I am. 
it is said that the deepening understanding of impermanence or anicca not only opens to the deepening understanding of anatta, but also opens to the deepening understanding of dukkha. Dukkha, this great vulnerability that we live in, that incessant change brings. It is said that the oppression by the incessant origination and dissolution, or the incessant arising and passing away, is the characteristic of dukkha. So in a way, you can't separate anicca from dukkha. It's this incessant arising and passing away of everything. We're trying to find lasting happiness somewhere, but we really can't. Everything is changing. Where is there any place we can find that lasting kind of security We're looking for happiness in the wrong way, in the wrong places. Everything is changing, and not only that, in a way you could say it's all decaying, another aspect of dukkha. Early on in my practice, almost 30 years ago, I was doing walking practice, and um, On Maui, there are many beautiful flowers, and we have many hibiscus flowers, like the one in the walking room outside here. And hibiscus flowers, at at least on Maui, I don't know about the one in the planter here, they usually last a day, just a day. And I was doing walking practice, and all of a sudden, uh, turning towards the hibiscus plant on my right, and noticing in a way that I'd never noticed that changing, decaying nature of that flower. And it brought about this incredible terror in the mind about how everything is changing, and not only changing, but decaying. There was a ripening in the practice at that time, the tremendous terror in fear, that radical view, that view of life never seen before, was an important part of deepening into practice. It was like an inside-out view. It was like an upside-down. It turned the world for me upside-down. The anichaness of that flower opened to the dukkhaness of it. And so, not long after that, I went to Manindra, to my teacher, who was at the retreat at that time, and was telling him this, this very simple view of this flower in just this moment led to this kind of like, wow, everything's just decaying, passing away so quickly before my eyes, even though that flower wasn't exactly crumbling up and dropping to the ground, But there was a a noticing, that understanding of that, that happened in a way that never happened before. I didn't know what was happening. And I felt that the practice really was falling apart. I couldn't, there was not enough equanimity to hold it at that time. And so when I went to Manindra, one of the things I remember him saying, listening 
and actually smiling about that opening to that insight and saying, let go, 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 let go. Just let go of how you think things really, how you think things are. Let go of the kind of conditioned way that we layer an understanding, an intellectual understanding on top of life. Surrender to the law. Let go of the view of you ha- that you have of everything. Keep opening to what the Dhamma is showing you before your very eyes. Surrender to the law, the law of the Dhamma. And so staying steady with that required more conscious equanimity, an ability to accept that truth, staying steady with it without wavering the mindfulness. Keep listening to the river, I said to myself. It's trying to tell me something, trying to tell me something more profound than the world can tell me with all its views and opinions, opening to the flow of experience. This is how it is. This is how it really is. Not getting stuck anywhere to views and opinions, staying open. There had to be a willingness on my part to give up how I thought it should be, how I thought it should be safe, and open to this kind of insecurity of knowing life in this very new way, moment to moment. It was an experience that began to liberate my understanding. And finally, the on-flowing river begins to teach us, begins to teach me in a new way that I don't have to resist it. I can open to the truth of that impermanence, which opens to the other truths of how it's all so empty of self, how it's all so can't hold on to anything, the dukkhaness of it, the insecurity of it, and let that be more and more and more okay, because it is the truth. And I went into practice, like many of you, wanting to know the truth deeply. Wanting to open to how it really is. So understanding anicca, we understand dukkha. We understand that these changing conditions of life won't provide any lasting happiness simply because they're always changing. There's nothing to cling to that will bring us any lasting happiness. I think Joseph makes this point over and over and over again in different ways. And these are words of the Buddha again. This is on one occasion when the Blessed One was living at Savati in the eastern park in the palace of Megara's mother, 
And when one of the rulers of the heavenly realm, Saka, went to the Blessed One and was asking the Blessed One questions about the Dhamma, and the Blessed One answered in this way, Here, ruler of gods, a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth clinging to. When a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth clinging to, he directly knows this of everything. Having directly known this of everything, he fully understands everything. Having fully understood everything, whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful, whether it's neither pleasant nor painful, he abides aware of impermanence in those feelings, contemplating fading away, contemplating cessation, contemplating relinquishment. Contemplating thus, he does not cling to anything in the world. When one does not cling, one is not agitated. When one is not agitated, one is liberated. The degree of suffering we experience is directly related to how well or how not so well we open to this fact of change, to the transitions of life. Once, um, a couple of years ago, I was at a train station in India, in a place near Varanasi, with Manindra and a few friends. And we were waiting for many hours, and the train was delayed, as it usually is in India. Manindra was slumped down on a bench, and it was way past the lunch hour. We thought we, we might have boarded the plane and, uh, train and got to where we needed to go in time for lunch, but hours and hours had passed. And so there was no proper lunch for Manindraji. So I was very concerned, very concerned about him. And so I turned to him, having seen him, and he was right next to me, slumped down on the bench. And I said, Munichi, are you hungry? Are you tired? And he actually, he looked a little bit disgusted. He looked that way, but um, I've learned not to. <laughs> you never know how he's feeling. So I said, Munichi, are you hungry? Are you tired? And he said, he said, hunger is there, but I am not hungry. Tiredness is there, but I am not tired. Could see the, you know, the phenomena arising and passing away in the body and in the mind, but not needing to uh, get so caught in it to make a sense of I around it. There's a saying that goes, Something like, suffering exists, but not a self that suffers. That's a great, mysterious truth that we sort of begin to relax into, understand into, through our practice of anicca, which opens to dukkha, which opens to anatta. And then there is that transition in life, that great change in our lives that changes us. 
And I wanted to talk about this, especially at this time in retreat, because it's a time in retreat that helps us to practice, I think, when we open to this great change of the fact of death that can, at this time in retreat, begin to openness, open us to the preciousness of practice. Steve gave a talk at the very beginning of this last six weeks of retreat on the four protective reflections, and one of them is on death. And so I'd like to expand on that now, because when we open to that kind of change, it can really change us, can really help us to see differently, to um, practice in an ardent way, but more gently persevering also. It opens our hearts, is how it changes us. It opens our hearts to the preciousness of life. If we really open to that, it transforms us and how we relate to life. We stop taking our practice and our life for granted. We really feel the, the trueness of the fact we never know if we'll get another chance to practice. This may be our the retreat that ends all of our retreats. We may not be able to come back again because of health, of responsibilities, because of death. We don't know. And not to take it on as kind of a gruesome or a grim fact, but to see that it can open to us the beauty of life. We can turn towards the beauty of the Dhamma, of opening to the truth of life, and really hold that, use it well. We learn today that one of our great Sayadaos passed away, Shui Umin Sayadao. This is a great, um, many people thought he was an arahant. And it was very wonderful that Steve got to visit him in the hospital in Burma when he was there. And so we have these precious teachings from our elders. And it reminded me when we got the email today that this flowing onness of life is not something to take for granted. It's something to really see into the preciousness of. Our elders who have, with great compassion, handed down the Dhamma and held it with such purity Everyone's getting older, including ourselves. And so this fact of life and death is brought to the forefront of our attention in this understanding of anicca. It protects us from being arrogant, 
about our practice, about what we think we know. It protects us from the ignorance that everything will stay the same. A couple of summers ago, or maybe last summer, I can't, the time goes by, can't remember, I was spending time with my mother, and Steve and I were taking her a little holiday. We were in Portland visiting one of my daughters. And so we were crossing the street, and she was holding our hand. And she's a very small woman. Uh, she's of Asian descent, Filipino. So her, she probably weighs about 85 pounds, and she's not... Um, she was five feet, but we were hemming her, her dresses about three or four inches, so she shrunk quite a bit now. And uh, we were crossing the street, and she was between us, holding our hands. And it was so odd, you know, I was looking kind of down, because she's so short, I was looking down on her. And I remember the time in my youth when I would look up at her, and I was holding her hand. And, uh, and now it's different. It's totally changed. And she's now not so strong, a little bit frail, but uh, the last time I called her on her birthday a few days ago, she told me she's good enough. She can still take the bus to bingo. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm happy for that. We're happy for that. So I really treasure um, my elders and my mother more than ever before. I mean, she wasn't always there for me emotionally and in many ways. But the preciousness of, of life through understanding Anicca so deeply has helped me open to that preciousness, to every preciousness. And early um, last year, also, when I went with a couple of friends to visit Manindra, thinking that, you know, I may not see him again. Lately on the telephone, I ask him how he is, and he says, oh, mind is clear, but body is not cooperating. (laughs) (laughs) So the preciousness of life through change, through decay, through growing old. In the last um, time I was with my daughter, the one in San Diego, the one that went through some surgery, and now she's okay, but the line between life and death was so thin at one point, and she came through it, we all came through it, and when we all came through it, she remarked to me how she could see everything in a different way because she went through that. She kind of saw the both sides of that line, and she said, I've taken so much for granted about life, Mom. I hope I don't do that anymore. 
This is from Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, a great Tibetan master. Just as every single thing is always moving inexorably closer to its ultimate dissolution, so also your own life, like a burning butter lamp, will soon be consumed. It would be foolish to think that you can first finish all your work and then retire to spend the last stages of your life practicing the Dhamma. Can you be certain that you will live that long? Does death not strike the young as well as the old? No matter what you are doing, therefore, remember death and keep your mind focused on the Dhamma. There's a story about the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, his experience of the four heavenly messengers. When he lived in luxury as a prince in a warrior clan of India, he had great wealth, and his parents did not want him to experience anything beyond the comfort and the luxury of the palace walls. But he wanted to go beyond that, He wanted to go beyond comfort, luxury. He wanted to go beyond what was known, as we are all doing here for ourselves. And one day he decided to go beyond the palace walls. And when he ventured beyond the walls of the palace, he came across, it is said, these four heavenly messengers. One way to look at these four heavenly messengers is that they were all messengers of change, of anicca. The first three heavenly messengers may have had to do with the outward manifestations of change, of anicca. The heavenly messenger of sickness, of old age, of death. And we could say that the fourth heavenly messenger That heavenly messenger was a mendicant monk, a monk that had renounced the the onflowing suffering of the world. And that renunciation had caused an inner transformation in him. And that inner transformation was significant of the potential change that we can experience in our own practice, that deep realignment with the truth of life, that realignment that brings us to the greatest happiness, the happiness that we're all looking for, but that keeps eluding us. It's so close, but we continually make it so far. when I was younger, not so open to this truth. Uh, There was a time when I was a single parent of three children in my 20s, and um, that was really dukkha. (laughs) I was overprotective. I was... uh, Some people said I was fearless, but that came from a kind of stupidity. (laughs) of not knowing. Um, But there was a lot of fear. 
I worked at that time in a cemetery. I worked for 20 years in a cemetery, the local cemetery on Maui. And uh, once when I went to Upandita, just to segue into something else for a moment, and I let him know, he asked me where I worked, and I said I worked in a cemetery. And he said, working in a cemetery is as close to living in a monastery and being in practice as you can get, because you're always seeing death and change. It was all around me, children, relatives of my own, relatives of people I knew, parents dying, leaving children, older people dying, spouses dying a day after that. Just, it broke my heart over and over and over and over again. But it really opened me, in a way. And during those early years, I was at a retreat with Ayakema on Maui. And I was going through this incredible fear about my children, overprotectiveness, and the storyline of every interview had to do with my children and what would happen to them and how am I going to do it and fear of the future and blame about the past and this and that and this and that. And she said something which in, at that time I didn't like her for and it took a long, long time for me to kind of um, deepen my wisdom into this through practice. And finally, I think she got so sick and tired of hearing me say the same thing, the same story, over and over again about my children, that she said to me, you must be able to see your children dead. That was really shocking. And I worked in a cemetery, and I thought, no, I've seen children in coffins, I've seen children on their sick beds, I've opened to this over and over again. I can't possibly do this with my children. It's as if I'd be wishing for it. But what she was really telling me was that I really had to be able to see the fact of change in life, the birth, the change, the decay, the death of everything, even my children. I had to have the kind of courage to open to that. Opening to that truth of life would make me stronger. It's not a gruesome understanding. There can be a real sweetness to it. Not getting caught up in it, but really taking it in. And this is the truth of life. Can I live in alignment with that truth and not resist it? It's the resistance to that truth that causes suffering, is a great cause of suffering. So let go, let go, let go, let go of all this resistance to that great truth. Surrender to the law of how it is. That's what will bring the great happiness. It's not searching for happiness anywhere outside of ourselves in having it have to be right or perfect or everybody in the way that makes it easeful for us to accept. 
I'm remembering that story that Steve told about Carlos Castaneda when someone asked him, how can I live a spiritual life? And he answered, every morning when you wake up, remember that everyone that you know around you that you see is someday going to die. If we really remembered this, we might be nicer and kinder. We also might begin to see more deeply into that true nature of life. There's a story of a nun during the Buddhist time. This nun was called Mitakali, and this story is in uh, the book The First Buddhist Women by Susan Murcott. And in the book, she describes uh, the precise moment of realization. This precise moment of realization was characterized by the insight into impermanence. Now, Mitakali was reputed to be quite an arrogant nun. She was self-centered, self-obsessed. But then she heard the Satipatthana Sutta, and she began to practice. And through the practice, and through her insight into Anicca, it changed her radically. And she became an arahant, a fully enlightened being. And so these are her words. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watch the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddhist teaching has been done. This is the insight into anicca that can liberate us. I'd like to end with these words of the Buddha. This is from the Maha Parinibbana Sutta, the last days, the last days of the life of the Buddha. And then the Blessed One said to the monks, Now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of the nature to decay. Strive on, untiringly. These were the Tathagata's last words. So let's sit for a moment.
All conditioned things are of the nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.